Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Good evening. My name Love is Sarah Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, our guest on the show is Dr. Sars Maxwell, uh, MD from the Chicago Recovery Alliance. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and for our book. Our website is called hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. And for more information, go to our website to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest tonight is uh, Dr. Sars Maxwell, MD, medical doctor, who's with the Chicago Recovery Alliance. Uh, She's an advocate for uh, methadone and for drug users' rights, various things. Sars, how are you doing tonight? I'm terrific, Ken. Thanks so much for inviting me. Well, I'm glad to hear you. I've read some of your work online. I saw the inter- I read the interview that you did on methadone wellness, and we're going to start with that topic. And uh, tell us, what is methadone? How does it work? How does it help heroin users? In order to understand methadone treatment, in under- order to understand any treatment for heroin addiction, you need to realize that Heroin addiction is a different breed of cat from other addictions. In fact, I think there's probably lots of different diseases subsumed under what we now call addiction. But what makes heroin addiction particularly different is that we understand the exact chemical imbalance in the brain that causes it. The imbalance is in a chemical called endorphin. Most people have heard of endorphins. They're the feel-good chemicals in our brains. They're natural opiates, and they mediate things like pleasure and pain, happiness and sorrow. They're very, very important in, in global function. The reason people become addicted to heroin or to other opiates, prescription opiates as well. They become addicted because their brain stops making enough endorphin before they ever try the drug. That's why what heroin addicts tell me all the time is, I always knew there was something wrong, something missing. I just, I didn't know what it was. And then I did my first bag, and yeah, I got high. But what really kept me using is I got whole. I said to myself, so this is how people feel. So for people addicted to heroin and other opiates, using an opiate is exactly like someone with diabetes using insulin. 
There's a substance in the body that you need to function normally. The body is not creating naturally enough of that substance for normal function, so it needs to be supplemented from the outside. That is the basis on which methadone treatment rests. They talk about it being opiate replacement therapy, and that confuses people because they think we're replacing the heroin. Well, why replace the heroin? They shouldn't be using anything. But it's not replacing the heroin. It's replacing the endorphin that the heroin was trying to replace. Methadone works better than heroin for a number of reasons. You can take it orally instead of injecting it. It has a much longer half-life. It lasts 18 to 30 hours each dose instead of heroin that only lasts about six to eight hours, so you need to use several times a day. And a big difference in this culture, methadone is legal. Of course, it's still sized, but it is legal. Okay, there's something that we often see on television, and I just saw an episode of Breaking Bad where they show people using heroin, and it's like they become immediately addicted, you know, with just once or twice using it. Is this is this a myth? Do most people immediately become addicted to heroin that use it? No. No, I, there, the only drug that people use that even the majority of people get addicted to is tobacco. There's no drug that instantly causes addiction. Now, as I previously said, if people have that pre-existing endorphin deficiency, then the very first time they use heroin, they're going to feel, gee, this is what I've been looking for all my life. But, no, it's still going to take a while. Um, it it makes a lot better television. Y- you know, you, you can't get several months and years of use into a 60-minute show. So they they, <laughs> they dumb it down a little. Yeah. Are there a lot of people who use heroin that are weekend warriors that will, like, very much control their use? The majority of people who use all drugs except tobacco are occasional users. Most of us, um, um, most, the vast majority of people in the world use some drug, whether it's caffeine or opiates or alcohol or something. Um, But the vast number of people who use drugs use them for the reasons we use caffeine and alcohol, to change our state of mind a little bit temporarily. And then they go back to their everyday life. Only the people with a pre-existing chemical imbalance of some sort develop addiction. We know that now for all of the addictions. It's just with heroin we know what the exact chemical imbalance is. But there's very exciting work coming out of NIDA in just the past couple of years showing 
that the brains of people who will become addicts are abnormal before they ever pick up a drug. The disease is in the brain. The, the drug is not the problem. The disease is the problem. Now, before we move on, I want to go address one other thing. It's about stigmatizing drug users. And, you know, if if you're making a television show, a movie, or anything in the media, if you show drug users as being normal people that, you know, act morally in uh, most instances and, you know, as decent people, you get accused of glorifying drug use and you get censored. Isn't that true? <laughs> well, that sounds like the people that say if you let gay people teach school, then kid, they're going to teach kids to be gay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it seems like in the movies, if you if you don't if you don't represent the drug user as a monster, you won't get your movie released. They'll say you're glorifying drug users. Absolutely, it's much better to glorify people who shoot folks. <laughs> <laughs> don't ask me to understand it it's true but I, I can't explain it but we know uh, most drug users well they I mean lots of drug users hold down jobs they have regular lives they don't break laws except to buy the drugs is the one law that they're breaking and, and well that again a- that's a way that heroin addicts are different if a heroin addict can get a regular and safe source for their heroin. They may live a normal life, work, raise kids, go to PTA meetings, coach Little League, and continue to maintain themselves with heroin. Methadone is easier because it's oral and it's longer acting. But heroin works just as good, just as well for replacing the endorphin if you have a reliable supply. It's when the supply is unreliable. Think what would happen in this country if insulin were not reliably available. You would have people committing horrible crimes because they know that they'd get sick and die without it. Well, you know, I think if uh, if coffee was illegal and you had to pay $100 to get an ounce of instant coffee, you'd have people uh, on the streets, uh, you know, having wars over coffee all the time. <laughs> well, I don't know. I That's possible, but I haven't seen many people who, whose lives have been ruined by by caffeine. Although a lot of people who use caffeine recreationally are physically dependent on it. See, being physically dependent is not the same as being addicted either. Well, Someone I know. Who, I, go on. I know. I'm I'm highly dependent on caffeine, and you know, if it was on, if those circumstances were to come into being tomorrow, I would be the first one out there on the street, you know, trying to buy mm-hmm. my illegal caffeine from the drug dealer. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I could not kick right. the habit immediately. Yeah. Right. Right. But. We have these arbitrary definitions of what drugs are okay and what drugs aren't. And those definitions are not only arbitrary, they're insane. 
because tobacco and alcohol are horrifically dangerous, deadly drugs that harm and kill not only the addict, but the people unlucky enough to share an apartment with them and breathe the same air or use the same road. But those are legal. Well, I agree. I agree absolutely. Um, it's three years now, three years ago now that I quit cigarettes, and now I'm the uh, weekend warrior. I have my cigar, uh, you know, once a week or so in the warm weather. In the winter, like now, I don't smoke. And uh, you know, because it's a cigar and I don't have to inhale, it's it's pretty safe. And I only smoke outside once a week, so now I'm a controlled user. I used to be an addict when I was doing cigarettes. Well, good for you. That's absolutely amazing. You're not only saving your own life, you're saving the life of your family and the people around you. Um, Cigarettes are incredibly deadly. Eight times more people die every year in this country from passive smoking, from breathing the same air as smokers, as all the illegal drugs put together. But our government subsidizes tobacco farmers. Mm-hmm. Well, I, since we're talking a little bit about stigma, I want to talk about stigma for methadone patients. And they get stigma inside the clinic. They get stigma from the community outside the clinic. Talk a little bit about this and, you know, what it's like. No one is more generally looked down upon than a junkie. Um, And, yes, that stigma carries over into those who are in treatment. Um, A large part of it is because people don't understand the meaning of substitution treatment. They think they're using just... They they don't see it as actual treatment of a disease. They see it as just pawning people off um, with something that will continue to, quote, unquote, get them high, which it doesn't. Addicts don't get high. Earth people get high from drugs. Addicts just maintain with drugs. Um, so there's that stigma. The, the stigma's also on... You know, when I proudly tell people that I'm a methadone doctor, it's like saying, yeah, I'm an abortionist. Uh, People look at you very strangely. Uh, Why are you admitting that, let alone being proud of it? Um, And the stigma that methadone patients undergo in the medical profession is... Absolutely heartbreaking. I had a patient who, he and his wife had been maintained on methadone for, I don't know, 20 years. They'd raised their kids, put them through college, were getting ready to retire. They were going to buy a recreational vehicle and travel around a little. And he got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, the same kind Steve Jobs had. Bad news bad prognosis, 
and his doctor sent him to an oncologist, a cancer specialist, who said, yeah, this is a bad disease. You probably only have three months to live, so you need to get off that methadone. Why? 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 So this poor patient, I mean, this is the cancer specialist telling him. So he stopped that day taking his his methadone, and four days later, he had to send his wife out to buy heroin for him for the first time in 20 years. And he came into my office just broken, sobbing. I I still get I still get really upset thinking about it. Unbelievable. And why did the doctor tell him that? Was there any reason? No. Another patient at home is having a heart attack. Wife calls 911. The paramedics come and the guy is conscious talking, having terrible chest pains. He's having a heart attack, but he's with the program, and he tells them, because you're supposed to tell medical people what's going on, he tells them, I'm on methadone, I'm maintained on methadone. So they gave him a shot of Narcan. Which puts you immediately Mm -hmm. into severe withdrawal, which is not what you want to do when someone's having a heart attack. No, of course not. Unbelievable. Unbelievable what people do to, and, and I think what it comes down to is that these people have no advocate. You know, in, in, the, in the 80s, my patients with AIDS could write to their congressman and say, I'm gay, I have AIDS, and I vote. Get on the stick. But what are these patients supposed to say? Here's my name. Here's my address. I commit a felony three times a day. Can you give me a hand? Well, I mean, the drug laws are completely insane. That's a whole other issue. But, you know, um, I mean, people with felonies, they lose their right to vote or they can lose their right to get student financial aid. They can't go to college. I mean... And they certainly can't ever get a reasonable job. Not yeah. with the record of of uh, drug felonies. So uh, I'm going to bring us back to the methadone clinic, and uh, I mean methadone clinics. Do all of them uh, take urine tests and monitor for drug use? Um. As far as I know, it's actually required by federal law uh, that you do, I think it's seven drops a year. Um, I was fortunate enough to, uh, with Dan Big in, in Chicago Recovery Alliance, for a brief period, for three years, um, we had a mobile methadone program that we ran. And, yes, there's no way to get around those federal requirements. What we would do is we'd give our people a urine specimen cup and say, bring it back in the morning. Um, 
what most methadone clinics do is make people go into a bathroom with the door open and the counselor standing there watching them. Um, and there's very little evidence that urine toxicology, that doing regular ones has any effect whatsoever on the outcome of treatment. And what happens but, to uh, what happens to a methadone patient if they if they find drug drug use uh, you know, evidence of drug use in the urine test? Well, nationwide, that's the com- most common reason for someone being involuntarily discharged from treatment, detoxed off. They're there to get treatment for drug use, but if they use drugs, then they're thrown out of treatment. So that would be like taking away your insulin because your blood sugar went too high. Exactly, precisely. So because you're showing symptoms of your disease, you get you get the medicine taken away to treat the disease. Well, that's pretty common all through addictions treatment. In abstinence-based treatment, too, if you use, you're out of there. Well, I've had my own experiences uh, with this, you know, since I used to be a real heavy drinker and got into lots of problems with alcohol and then decided to change that around and uh, drink in ways that no longer caused any life problems. And, you know, I would be seeking help from a, a therapist and I would be honest and say, yeah, I was through alcoholism treatment a long time ago. It made things worse, but I eventually got my life together and got the drinking under control now I drink once a week. And it's like, oh, well, I can't give you psychotherapy because you're not abstinent. Go to AA. Didn't you hear what I told you? You know, the problems are resolved. Yes. I'm seeking yes. problems because, you know, I'm having lots of stress in my life. I'm having conflicts in my life. I need to talk about what's going on. And, oh, but I can't give you any psychotherapy. You have to go check into a treatment program. You know, Did you what? ask the therapist how many times a week they drink? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I tried some of that stuff. Of course, I was in Minnesota where everybody's really psycho on this stuff, and they would, uh, you know, say, oh, oh. yeah, yeah, they're nutsy there. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, now, yours isn't um the only experience. I, I too, uh, am. Uh, I had experiences with heavy drinking, but. I'm an alcoholic, and it became abundantly clear to me that it was not, it was much easier for me to drink nothing at all than mm-hmm. to drink just a couple of drinks. So mm-hmm. I quit altogether, oh, what, 19 years ago? Something like that. Um, and that is the best treatment for a lot of people with severe brain disorder because one of the disorders in the brain of someone uh, who's predisposed for alcoholism is this satiety thing. When earth people take a drink, they say that was delicious, go on about their lives. The drink satisfies the desire for a drink. But in the alcoholic, it's skewed around. When I think 
I want a drink, I take a drink, and it doesn't satisfy the desire, it multiplies it. Mm-hmm. So, so for that reason, for many addicts, uh, complete abstinence from the drug that they're pre-programmed against is the easiest way to keep their life in order. But I'm absolutely delighted um, that, you know, it's, it's marvelous that there are people whose brains are not so badly disordered and who can continue to use drugs uh, normally the way most people do. Well, we saw a large uh, survey, NISARC, uh, that came out about 10 years ago, and they've been, uh, you know, crunching the data ever since, and they found about half of people with alcohol dependence quit completely. And, I mean, about half of people that recover from alcohol dependence do it by quitting completely, and about half do it by cutting back or being drinking in less problematic manners. So our program mm-hmm. has always been totally supportive of abstinence as a choice. And we tell people, you know, do the cost-benefit analysis. Look at the costs and benefits of drinking versus the costs and benefits of quitting and decide for yourself what is your best goal. Is quitting going to be the best goal? Is being safer going to be your best goal? Is is reducing going to be your best goal? We let people decide for themselves. Many decide. Mm-hmm. Many decide quitting works best for them. Well, gee, that sounds absolutely amazingly like good sense to me. <laughs> I wish there was more good sense in the addictions field. Now, some people choose a solution like mine. I abstain completely from alcohol at least five days a week, five to six days a week. When I drink, I drink safely at home. I drink a fifth of whiskey, which is a large amount. It's 17 standard drinks. But I don't leave the house. When I drink, I don't drink on a work night, and it doesn't get me in trouble. Cool. So one more thing. Let's talk a little bit about uh, buprenorphine before we finish up here. Ah, good stuff. The big advantage of buprenorphine over – first, buprenorphine does essentially what methadone does. It's an opiate substitution treatment. Um, But it has a huge advantage over methadone in that I can, someone can come to my office and I can diagnose them with opiate dependence. I can write a prescription for buprenorphine and they take it to the OSCO drug, just like we're pretending that I'm a doctor and they're a patient. With methadone, I can't write a prescription for someone who needs it. They have to go to a clinic and go through the going to the clinic six, seven days a week for months and all of that. So that has been an absolute revolution in opiate dependence treatment that has given lives to lots and lots of people. Buprenorphine has mm -hmm. a huge disadvantage. Mm -hmm. It is hideously expensive. Mm -hmm. And I simply, personally, I usually won't accept someone into treatment 
if they don't have insurance that'll pay for it. Because pretty soon they're going to be feeling bad and want me to help them feel better, and what they need is more buprenorphine, but they can't pay for it. So it excludes a lot of people who need it and would benefit. Mm -hmm. Is buprenorphine less likely to be abused uh, than methadone when, uh, you know, people take it home like that for a prescription? Um, I think so. Certainly that's how it seems to be turning out. Um, Most people say that when they take their methadone, they don't get high, but there is discernible effect that can be perceived as as pleasurable. And if taken in slightly higher doses than a maintenance dose, methadone can produce a sort of high. That doesn't seem to happen with buprenorphine, no matter what dose you take. It's interesting um, that the vast majority of buprenorphine that is diverted, that is used by people who don't have a prescription for it, is used basically for treatment purposes. It's simply not used to get high. Um, And, in fact, there's even research that shows that one of the predictors for a good treatment outcome in buprenorphine is that they've had previous illicit experience with buprenorphine. Um, So diversion is not a big problem with it. Um, it, It's a terrific drug. And the other point I wanted to get, you can't crush up the pills and shoot them, can you? Well, I suppose you could. Um, There's not a big advantage to it Mm -hmm. because, as I said, even in a higher dose, it doesn't give you any more of a rush. There's also a quirk in the chemistry of buprenorphine such that if you take it, when you take it, you have to be somewhat dope sick. If you Mm -hmm. have heroin or methadone in your system when you take it, it'll make you sick instead of high. So that has um, decreased its its street value as well in that if you don't know how to do it, it can make you sick. Okay. I guess the one I was the thing I was trying to get at, um I think the suboxone isn't that mixed with the uh, naloxone? Yeah. Uh, but the yeah, so theoretically if you ground that up and uh injected it, it would make you sick, but actually for most people it makes them sick anyway because they take it too soon. And even people who do do it right, you, you don't get a high from it. There, there's no rush. There's no uh, gain. So injection use of buprenorphine is just, as you said, the you know the cost-benefit analysis is no. Nope, there's no advantage at all. Okay. 
Well, we're still recording now. We're not streaming live, but we're recording into the archives, so we've got a couple minutes left. Uh, what would you like to leave us with? What final words? As an addiction doctor, I think that the more the disease of addiction gets recognized as a medical thing, now this does mean pathologizing people, and I'm not into pathologizing people who are using drugs normally, but for people whose drug use is causing pathology in their lives, the more that pathology can be recognized as a medical rather than a legal or moral or social or behavioral problem, the better off people are going to be. Okay. Thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Dr. Sars Maxwell. Thank you so much, Ken. And everyone, stay tuned next week. We'll be back on Thursday night, our regular time next week. And our guest will be Mo Satar, who runs the Safe Rides Unlimited program. It's a drunk driving prevention program that provides safe rides for people who are intoxicated. And our second guest will be Donna J. Cornett, who is the author of Seven Weeks to Safe Social Drinking. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening, and good night. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.